As we get ready to uh, begin this, uh, to begin our new uh, study through the book of Joshua, we're going to start in Joshua chapter 1. So if you have access to a Bible in front of you, or if you have the Bible on your phone, you want to pull that out, we're going to be in Joshua. Joshua is going to be the sixth book in the Bible. You go through those first five books that are sometimes called the Law or the Books of Moses. Some people call them the Pentateuch, those first five books. Then you get to Joshua immediately after that in in the Old Testament. Dan Stewart is our chairman of deacons for this upcoming year. The deacons, uh, as far as the leadership goes, kind of follows a different schedule than the calendar year, but Dan is our, our chairman of the deacons this year, and so I want you to know how thankful I am for for our deacons and the service they provide, the way that they are seeking to uh, be leading servants in our church. And Dan, uh, it's already been a good time being able to work with him and see how God's at work in his family. So I've asked Dan to come and read scripture for us this morning as we get started. Joshua 1. After the death of Moses, the Lord's servant, the Lord's servant to Joshua, son of Nun, who had served Moses, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, you and all the people prepare to cross over the Jordan to the land I am giving the Israelites. I have given you every place where the soul of your foot tread. Just as I promised Moses, your territory will be from the wilderness in Lebanon to the great Euphrates River, and, and the land of the Hittites and west of the Mediterranean Sea. No one will be able to stand against you as long as you live. I will be with you, just as I was with Moses. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you will distribute the land I swore to their fathers to give to them as an inheritance. Above all, be strong and very courageous to, be, to carefully observe the whole instructions my servant Moses commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, so that you will have success wherever you go. This book of instruction must not depart from your mouth. You are to recite it day and night, so that you may carefully observe everything written in it. For then you will prosper and succeed in whatever you do. Haven't I commanded you, be strong and courageous? Do not be afraid or discouraged, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Then Joshua commanded the officers of the people, go through the camp and tell people, tell the people, get, get provisions ready for yourself, for within three days you will be crossing the Jordan to go in and take possession of the land the Lord your God has given you to inherit. Joshua said to the Rebutonites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, remember that Moses, the Lord's servant, commanded you when, you when he said, The Lord your God will give you rest, and he will give you this land. Your wives, your children, and livestock may remain in the land Moses gave you to this side of the Jordan. But your fighting men must cross over in battle formation ahead of your brothers and, and help them until the Lord gives your brothers rest, as he has given to you. And they, they too possess the land the Lord your God has given them. You may then return to the land of your inheritance and take possession of what Moses, the Lord's servant, gave you on the east side of the Jordan. They answered Joshua, Everything you have commanded us, we will do, and everywhere you send us, we will go. We will obey you just as we obeyed Moses in everything. And may the Lord the, your God be with you as he was with Moses. Anyone who rebels against your order and does not obey your words and all that you, you command him will be put to death. Above all, above all, be strong and courageous. Let's pray. Uh, dear God, we just come to you now. We thank you so much for your word. God, I pray that we rely on your word each and every day as, as a way to draw closer to you. God, I thank you so much for Emmaus and the, the staff and the leadership and the leadership that has been provided by Owen. 
God, I just pray that we continue to, to live our lives for you, to drive uh, closer to you uh, each and every day. And God, we just ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you got one of the uh, bulletins as you came in, on the back are some sermon notes that will guide us through the time. Feel free to utilize those if that's helpful for you, just to have an idea of, of where we're going during the sermon. So our kids are in elementary school, and we're at that stage of life that I had forgotten about for a while, but it's the stage of life where if you read a certain number of books, there are good rewards that come from that, like free pizza at Pizza Hut, and free ice cream at Brahms, and all these other things that come if you read a certain number of books. And so I remember as a kid how important it was. Now there's one thing that comes with that. What exactly is your definition of read? Uh, so when your kid walks in, they said, hey, Dad, I read 50 books this afternoon. You know, you're like, oh, what, let's talk about the definition of the word read. How much do you actually have to read for that to really count toward free ice cream? I'm all, I'm all about free ice cream and free pizza, but, you know, let's think. The problem with that is I remember back to my days in college and especially in the Ph.D. program where they give you this huge reading list and you look at it and you say, there's no way that I'm going to be able to read every page that's been assigned to me. And so then you start to have these uh, discussions in your conscience. What does it really mean to read something? You know, honestly, what, what exactly is the professor asking of me here that, that I would read this? And so there's a strategy of reading in which you look closely at the table of contents, you read the opening pages, you read the closing pages, and then you make sure every page in the middle receives some love from your thumb. Like at least you, you know, you kind of, you kind of go. Now I'm not, I'm not espousing that, kids, especially high school students. I, you know, if you're assigned to read it, read it. But you reach a certain point of how am I ever going to understand what this book is? So if I get into class and the professor pins me down on what this book is about, I have to have something that I that I can bring to the table. Funny enough, that strategy of reading the beginning and the end and seeing how they fit together works really great in the Bible. Part of reading the beginning and the end is not that you would skip the middle, it's that you would understand what the middle is all about. When you're reading the Bible, when you're reading a lot of these biblical texts, it helps to skip to the end and see where is this story going, how do all these pieces fit together. In the book of Joshua, as we begin to read through this as a church, you're gonna find a lot of what are called chiastic patterns. Chiastic is just a fancy word for you have this content, let's let it represented by the letter A, and then you have B, you have what comes next, and then B will be repeated, and then A will be repeated in some way. And so it kind of follows this pattern. It's like a sandwich. You have the bread on both sides and the meat in the middle, and, and that's how a lot of times Scripture's laid out. And in Joshua, it's all over the place. You'll find this throughout the Old Testament, but Joshua is full of these patterns. What I want us to do this morning is to see how the very beginning of Joshua connects to the very end of Joshua, and in doing so, it'll open up the book for us. We'll be able to make sense of it going forward. But in order to understand what's happening here, in order to make sense of how Joshua fits into Scripture, we have to see how the beginning and, and the end fit together. So this is going to prepare us for where we're going. Look back at the very beginning of chapter 1. So we're in Joshua 1. Some of this will be up on the screen as well for you to, to have if your Bible's not open in front. But let's see how it begins here. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. 
Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving them to the people of Israel. Now I want you to see that the book of Joshua begins with a funeral. And we're going to reference this idea of funeral and death many times in the sermon this morning. So I want to start off with the obvious and say, you and your family may be right in the middle of this reality now. You may be carrying a lot of emotions with you about the idea of funeral and death. And so I want to be very careful moving into this. This is part of how Joshua fits together, so we're going to address it. But I want you to realize that just like the family I sat with very late last night experiencing death in their family, this is not a theoretical idea. This is not an abstract idea. This is, this is real life. This is what we address. And so I titled the sermon Six Funerals and a Wedding, not trying to be silly, but just trying to say this is how we make sense of what, what the Bible is about, what we're seeing in Scripture. So you can see how it begins with a death, with Moses' funeral. Now, where does this come from? This comes actually from the end of Deuteronomy. If you just turn one page to the left in your Bible, or you scroll up in your phone, immediately prior to this, when the book of Deuteronomy ends in chapter 34, it ends with Moses' death. So you look in Deuteronomy chapter 34, verse 1, Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land that was there. And then it lays out uh, the land that, that's mentioned there. The backstory to this, the backstory to this is found in, uh, oh, let's go ahead and, and look at verses three and four. Verse three, when he lays, lays it out there, the Lord said to him in verse four, this is the land of which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to your offspring. I have let you see it with your eyes, in verse 4, but you shall not go over there. You say, well, why, why was Moses not allowed to go into the promised land? Why did he not have the chance to lead the people? Well, the backstory to that goes back to Numbers chapter 20. Uh, this is a good place to go back and read the whole story this afternoon. Some of you in your Sunday school classes will be reading the story next week on Sunday morning. But Numbers chapter 20 tells the story of how previously in Moses' leadership— God had brought them to a place that they needed water, and he told Moses to strike the rock, and water would come out of the rock. Well, they come back around to another time that they need water, and God tells Moses not to strike the rock. He tells Moses to speak to the rock. But you know what Moses does in that situation? He strikes the rock twice. And what amounts to frustration and what really looks like an act of unbelief and disobedience at that point and because of that act of not speaking to the rock the way the Lord had commanded him, instead he hit it twice, God says, you will not be a part of leading my people into the promised land. It's not that I'm not going to keep my promises. It's not that I'm disavowing you as my servant. It's that you will not see this to completion. And so this is part of the backstory that's going on right here. Why is Moses not able to go in? Well, it's because of this lack of faith, this lack of obedience that happened earlier in, in leading the people. You go ahead um, there to, to verse 5. It says that Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in the valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor. But no one knows the place of his burial to this day. I've got a couple of, of maps and pictures to kind of give you an idea of, of where this is located. I haven't had a chance to use my fancy uh, laser pointer 
in a while, so we're going to bring the laser pointer out. Though I realize I can only point to one screen at a time, so it kind of takes away the effect of it, but nonetheless. So what's going on here? Mount Nebo is this red spot on Google Maps. This is the Mediterranean Sea, the big body of water out here. You have the country of Israel. Egypt is down this way. Mount Nebo is in modern-day Jordan. Uh, so a little difficult for travel groups to get in there. It depends on how things are going politically, but some travel groups are able to make it in there. Here's a picture from the top of Mount Nebo, looking back to what amounts to really the west, looking back a little bit west-southwest at this point. So standing in Jordan, looking back to the west-southwest, you think, whew, that doesn't look like the promised land to me. <laughs> uh, is that really what it would have looked like to Moses? There's some indications that at that time, this area would have been much more lush that Moses was looking out onto. Some of the agricultural practices over the years have kind of decimated the area. You also have to remember, Moses has been going through desert. He's been going through incredibly barren areas. At that point, everything looks good. You know, when you drive east across Arizona and New Mexico on I-40, even Oklahoma looks pretty at that point when you get here because you're like, oh my word, I've gone through all this desert, all these billboards, and finally, you know, I've got this to look at. So some of this being the promised land may have to do with the fact of where Moses had come, but they're looking out. You see this little placard that is right here. That was not there when Moses was there, but the, uh, the close-up, shows you where he's looking. I know it's a little hard to see, but you can go online and find a picture of this placard. He's looking to this west-southwest. Back to his left is the Dead Sea. Back to the right, you have Jericho, where they're going to advance into at some point. But just remembering, and kids, if you're here in your elementary school and you're, you're looking at this, this is a good reminder to remember that the Bible happened in real places to real people. That when you see Mount Nebo listed in scripture, this is not just a random place that somebody made up. You can go there today and be able to see it, and it comes alive as you're able to see, see what's going on. So this is the idea. This is where Moses is standing. He's not going to be able to go into the promised land. What's going to happen? Look at verse 7 and 8 really quick in Deuteronomy 34. So we know that Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eye was undimmed and his vigor unabated. Why does that matter? It's a reminder that he, his failure to make it into the promised land doesn't have to do with himself. It has to do with an act of God. So it's not like he just ran out of gas at this point. It's the fact that God said, you've come this far and you're not going to go any further. Verse 8, the people of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab for 30 days. Then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses were ended there's a good reminder in this part of the story. It's for what Dale Davis says. The mortality of God's servants never handicaps the everlasting God. That God's plans are not dependent on one particular person. If they ever are, they're not the plans of God. And I don't need, mean in any way to be morbid or disrespectful, but just remember, God's plans here at Emmaus are not dependent on the mortality of any of his servants that we don't continue on as a church because of one particular person or one particular leadership that would happen, that God is at work according to his plans, according to his power. Does he care for his servants? Absolutely. Is God calloused in these views? No, not at all. But his plans are not dependent on his servants moving forward. And so the book of Joshua, the book of Joshua begins with a funeral. 
But then you've got to turn to the end of Joshua. So skip ahead to Joshua chapter 24. And here's where it really gets interesting. So after Moses, and we're going to talk about this next week, after Moses, Joshua takes over. He leads the people through all these battles. We'll go through them in the weeks and months to come. But you get to the end of Joshua. Joshua chapter 24, verse 29. Joshua 24, verse 29. After these things, Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died being 110 years old. Stopping really quickly just for something interesting. At the beginning of Joshua, Moses is called the servant of the Lord, and Joshua is called the minister of Moses, or kind of Moses' right-hand man. Notice at the end of Joshua how Joshua is referred to. He's called the servant of the Lord. So at this point, he's taken on the same title that Moses was given. But what happened to him? The same thing. The book of Joshua begins with a funeral, the funeral of Moses. And the book of Joshua ends with a funeral, the funeral of Joshua. Joshua has done his work as the servant of the Lord, and now he dies. He dies at 110 years old. He doesn't even make it as far as Moses. Moses made it 120 years. Joshua makes it 110 years. And it says they buried him in his own inheritance at Timnasserah, which is in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gosh. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua, on all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, and had known all the work that the Lord did for Israel. Just a couple of things to point out in those verses. One is the word inheritance that shows up there in verse, tw- verse 30. They buried him in his own inheritance. As Dan was reading earlier, part of the book of Joshua is about how the people gained their inheritance in the promised land. So it's a sign of saying God kept his promise to the end of the book. Joshua has his inheritance. But then in verse 31, it says Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and the days of the elders who outlived Joshua. Once again, God's plans keep going when one of his servants is no longer there. It doesn't stop with one particular person. So you have the funeral of Moses at the beginning of the book. You have the funeral of Joshua at the end of the book, but that's not the only funeral. Look in verse 32. In verse 32, as for the bones of Joseph which the people of Israel brought up from Egypt. They buried them at Shechem in the piece of land that Jacob bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of money. It became, there's the word again, an inheritance of the descendants of Joseph. Now the backstory to Joseph comes out of Genesis chapter 50. So the book of Genesis, there, the first book in the Bible, ends by telling the story of Joseph. And in the book of Genesis, we've got some of these verses up here for you to see the way the way that this ends, but in Genesis chapter 50, I believe it's around verse 24. Um, can you guys bring Genesis 50, 24 up? There, there we go. Uh, Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land, to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old, same age as Joshua when he died. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Now, when you're reading through Scripture, some of these place names start to make you glaze over a little bit. Never get over the fact that the book of Genesis ends in Egypt. 
and how strange that would be when in Genesis chapter 12, God is promising to Abraham all of this promised land and how your descendants will live in the promised land and there will be as many as the stars in the sky. And then the book of Genesis ends with Joseph dying in Egypt. It's as if God's promises haven't come true. But then you get to the end of Joshua and notice what happened. Joshua's, not Joshua, you get the book of Joshua, into the book of Joshua, but Joseph, his bones are brought up out of Egypt just like God said would happen. Just as all of his plans are being fulfilled through his people coming in the promised land, it happens right here. This is not the only funeral, though. You go back to the end of Joshua and you have another funeral that happens. Joshua chapter 24 Verse 33, it says, Eleazar, the son of Aaron, died, and they buried him at Gibeah, the town of Phinehas, his son, which had been given him in the hill country of Ephraim. Okay, why does Eleazar matter here? Eleazar is the high priest. He's the son of Aaron. And from our Bible, we know that Moses and Aaron are obviously connected in ministry. And so you have Joshua who follows Moses and he dies. And then you have Eleazar who's the son of Aaron. He dies as well. Joshua is ending with all of these funerals of those that have been chosen by God to bring the people into the promised land. And guess what? God's plans are not stopping. God's plans are coming to fruition. God continues to keep his promises. Eleazar, when you read through the book of Joshua, you find that he was instrumental in helping divide up the land, helping the people figure out where they were going to live so they were in their inheritance. So he dies, and yet the work of the Lord goes on. The lawgiver dies, and the work of the Lord goes on. The high priest dies to give the sacrifices. The work of the Lord goes on. You say, what's going on here with all of these deaths, with all these funerals? I want you to see the way this pattern works out. Um, and I've tried to lay it out in charts. I know the print is small, and I'm s- sorry about that, but I want you to see the way this, this lays out. So the law, the first five books of the Bible, what we call the Pentateuch, it begins with a birth, the birth of creation. I know it's a little bit of a stretch, but you get the idea, that it begins with creation, begins with a birth. In Genesis chapter 3, though, death is introduced when Adam and Eve sin, when they rebel against the plan of God and set themselves up to be God. And so death is introduced into the equation. Genesis ends with death when Joseph happens to die, and it's mentioned in Genesis chapter 50. So the first book of the Bible goes birth, death, all these stories ends with death. Genesis ends with that. The five books of the law end with death because we've already seen that Moses dies in Deuteronomy 34. In your Bible, Joshua is considered the first of the prophets. We may not always think about Joshua that way, but Joshua in your Bible is considered the first of the prophets in the Old Testament. It begins with death, Moses' funeral that's recounted in Joshua 1. The book of Joshua ends with death, mentioning Joseph and Joshua and Eleazar in Joshua 24. Then all of the book of the prophets in the Old Testament. This gets lost on us sometimes, but all of the book of the prophets in the Old Testament, ending with Malachi, the final word in Malachi, in your Bible, is the word destruction. And it's a word that shows all the way up, uh, it shows up all the way through the book of Joshua. And it's the idea that the prophets begin with death and they end with this idea of death. And you say, why? Why all of this death language? 
Well, it goes back to the funeral of Adam. It goes back to Genesis chapter three. Look at these verses on the screen about Genesis chapter three, verse 17. To Adam, God said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. Then it goes on in the next part. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And then in Genesis 5 it says, the days of Adam after he fathered Seth, were 800 years old. He had other sons and daughters, and then he lived 930 years, and he died. Now, Paul picks up on this idea in the New Testament. If you want to make a note in your, in your uh, bulletin, Paul picks up on this idea, and it's in Romans chapter 5. And I've got a couple of the verses up here to give you an example of it. But in Romans chapter 5, notice what Paul says. He says, sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin. Kids, you might ask, why do people die? Why, why do we live in a world where people die? It came as a result of sin. Rebellion against the ways of God. Sin, or death came through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Death reigned from Adam to Moses. There comes the book of Joshua, opening up right there from Paul. Death reigned from Adam to Moses, and then it picks right up in Joshua. Even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. You can see this idea. Why do we live in a world full of death? Well, it came because of the introduction of sin. And so you have the funeral of Adam, but what we can't miss is the funeral of Adam is also the funeral of every one of us. Because what you find coming up next on the screen are these references that come out of Romans chapter 6, verse 23, where it says the wages of sin is death. And then in Ephesians 2, it will tell us that you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now, work at, now at work in the sons of disobedience. So there's the funeral of Moses, of Joshua, of Joseph, of Eleazar, of Adam, and of us. Death reigns because of sin. You say, wow, that's weighty. Yeah, it, yeah, it is. It is weighty. But thank God that is not the end of the story. And thank God that our Savior Jesus, that his name is tied directly to the name of Joshua. That the name of Joshua means God saves. The name Jesus comes from Yeshua, comes from Joshua. It means God saves. Hebrews chapter 4 is our point of connection here. That what Moses couldn't do, what Joshua couldn't do, what Joseph couldn't do, what Eleazar couldn't do, what Adam couldn't do, Jesus did. That he was perfectly obedient, that he embraced suffering, that he took on all of our pain, all of our sin, all of our death, that he died for us. He rose victoriously and he will return victoriously. Everything we couldn't do, everything that couldn't be done by Moses or Joshua or any of the prophets was done through Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 4, if Joshua had given them rest, in other words, if Joshua had been able to do everything that had been promised, God would not have spoken of another day. It would have all been finished with Joshua, but the Bible doesn't end with Joshua. 
So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Matthew 1, verse 21, Mary will bear a son, the virgin will bear a son, and she will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Joshua tells us about the God who saves. Jesus is the God who saves. Sometimes the book of Joshua, Joshua will be presented as a leadership book. That's not wrong. That's not bad. How can I be a more courageous leader? How can I be a better leader? But if you ever understand the book of Joshua just as a leadership textbook, you've missed the whole purpose of the book of Joshua in Scripture. Joshua is calling you back to the God who saves because it begins with death, it ends with death, but it sets before us the one who has defeated death. And because of Hebrews chapter 4 in the New Testament, we're able to see how Jesus is the perfect Joshua. That what Joshua is not able to do, Jesus has done as God with us. So what do we do with this reality? How do we move forward with this reality? I put three things on your notes that I think would be, would be helpful that I want you to know. The first is this. Confront the reality of death. And I say that a little more forcefully than I intended to because there needs to be a lot of care and a lot of love behind that, especially because of where you may be with your family right now. But we have to confront the reality of death. Heads up, parents. Joshua is R-rated. I, I don't know how else to say that. Uh, it's not even PG-13. Like, uh, Joshua is R-rated. And really, if we just admit it, a lot of the Bible is that case. We try to make the Bible super spiritual and clean and, you know, Rainbows, there is a rainbow in there, but it comes after a lot of destruction, and so it, it's not a clean book. There, there's the reality of destruction. There's a lot of death in the book of Joshua, and so when I tie Joshua to Jesus, I'm not trying to over-spiritualize it. I'm not trying to tell you, pretend like this is not all in there. The thing that never ceases to amaze me about Christianity, and if I ever got pressed into a corner and said, Owen, somebody said, Owen, give me one reason why you're a Christian. Why, why do you hold on to this idea? It's this reality that our God is not a God who says you need to rise above your pain and suffering in order to get to me. Ours is a God who says, I will come to you in the midst of your suffering. I will take on your suffering. I will take on your pain. I will take on your sin. This is the reason that generic spirituality will never work. Because generic spirituality calls you to pull yourself out of your pain and your suffering and almost to pretend like it never existed. Where Christianity is the answer comes right in the middle of the pain. The answer comes right in the middle of death for the one who took on our death, who took on our suffering, who took on our sin, so that we would not be able to bear it, because we can't bear it on our own. It's about the God who saves, not us trying to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. And so I would call you in a culture that does everything possible to resist the reality of death. Billions and billions of dollars are spent every year. And hear me say Oh my goodness, I'm so thankful for modern day medicine. I'm thankful for those of you who work in the middle medical field. I'm thankful for all that represents. The danger, though, is that we would spend our whole lives closing our eyes to the reality of death. One aspect of pastoring that doesn't come easy to me, but I'm being reminded of more and more, is part of being a part of a church is just helping people prepare to die. 
And I don't say that in a way to scare anybody, but just to remember, you can go through your whole life and never think about death, and then it greets you right there, and you come completely unprepared because you've just tried to live every day never thinking about that reality. Guess what? We are all sinners, and the wages of sin is death, and so that reality comes to every one of us. But we don't meet it on our own because of the next point. So you confront the reality of death, but the next point is that you embrace the hope of life through faith in Christ. I told you the Bible begins with a birth, it's full of death, and then it ends with a wedding. The Bible begins with a birth, it's full of death, it ends with a wedding. Revelation chapter 21, look how this happens. Revelation chapter 21, verses that are gonna sound very, very familiar to you. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming out of heaven from God, prepared as bride, as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, listen to these words and the power that comes from them. Um, jump ahead to that next slide so we can see the, the words in verse three. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. How can you explain the Bible to someone? Begins with a birth, with a possibility of full and perfect life. Full of death because of sin in the middle. It ends with a marriage with heaven and earth being brought together through Jesus Christ. And what happens with that marriage? Death is no more. Death is destroyed. Death is done away with because sin has been done away with, cast out so that heaven is a completely pure and holy place. We embrace this life that's available through Jesus Christ. And then the next point, don't miss this next point. So you confront the reality of death, you embrace the hope of life through Christ, and you pray and strive for revival. I want you to know that I hope the book of Joshua for us as a church would drive us toward prayer, would drive us toward revival, that we would think about what it is to have joy in salvation, to worship the God who saves, that through the book of Joshua we would worship more freely, we would worship in a way that shows that we love our King, we love our Savior, that you would be driven back to God's word, that you would find yourself pursuing holiness in a new way, that you would find yourself living on mission. What has God set before me as my inheritance? What does God call me to? What has he gifted me for? That God would use the book of Joshua to bring a revival among us because death has been defeated. Because there is the hope of life, we're able to strive for that. We're able to pray for that. We're able to live in that. Yesterday, a man named Nabil Qureshi, who you may have never heard of, a uh, guy named Nabil Qureshi, passed away. He was 34 years old. He died of stomach cancer. Nabil Qureshi, for most of his life, was a Muslim. He grew up in a very conservative, very strict Islamic background. And in college, uh, at Old Dominion in, in uh, college, a friend reached out to him, a friend named David Wood reached out to him, sharing the gospel, sharing the hope. He led Nabil through this process of seeing the hope that's found in scripture, seeing the grace of Christ. 
And then Nabil became a believer and he began to publish books talking about coming out of Islam, talking about becoming a Christian. Powerful books. Um, he, he was married within the last couple of years. He and his wife uh, became pregnant and then they lost the baby short a- shortly afterward. But when his most recent book came out last year, he released a Facebook post saying that on the same day that his most recent book had been published, that he had been diagnosed with stomach cancer. And he fought that. He went through that battle. He prayed for healing. He had all these people around him. But yesterday, he, he passed away from that, that stomach cancer. I want you to hear what, what Nabil wrote in the last days of his life. He said, as I consider what the future might look like, Never once have I doubted this, that Jesus is Lord, his blood has paid my ransom, and by his wounds I am healed. I have firm faith that my soul is saved by the grace of God and not by any accomplishment of my own. I am so thankful that I am a child of the Father, redeemed by the Son, and sealed by the Holy Spirit. In the midst of this storm of cancer, I do not have to worry about my salvation, and for that I praise you, O God. The book of Joshua begins with a funeral, and it ends with a funeral. The Bible begins with a birth, and it ends with a marriage. What's the difference maker? It's the power of the God who saves. This world will promise you all kinds of sources of life, and every one of them will fail you. But the God who saves is always faithful, always good, always loving. How do we celebrate this as believers? We celebrate this in one way through the taking of the Lord's Supper. As Christians, we celebrate victory over death by remembering a death. We celebrate victory over death by remembering a death. We're going to come together as a church here at the close of our service. We're going to remember the Lord's Supper. We're going to remember what Christ did to take on our death and our suffering. But through him we have victory and hope and salvation. After we take of the Lord's Supper, we're going to stand and we're going to sing a final song together. And the offering plate will be passed during that time. Let me tell you, before I pray and we go into the Lord's Supper, let me tell you a couple of things about this. If you are here and you are not a follower of Christ. During this time, we have some verses on the screen. I would encourage you to read those verses. Think about some of the things that have been said today. I know a sermon is full of a lot of words, and we catch a few percent of them, but these verses on the screen can be helpful for you. If you're here with kids, and they have not trusted in Christ for salvation, you're still talking to them, they're still learning, this is a chance for them to watch what it looks as we celebrate salvation. I know it's hard as a parent to pass the plate and they're asking for a cracker and a cup and that sort of thing. But this is a chance to talk to them about the meaning of the gospel. What, what did Owen talk about this morning? We have hope beyond death because of Christ. And we remember that in the taking of the Lord's Supper. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray for us. After I pray, our deacons are going to come forward and we're going to pass these elements When you take the cups, you're going to take two cups at a time. They're stacked together. One has the bread, one has the juice. You're going to take those cups and hold them, and then we'll take the Lord's Supper together. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that this time of gathering for worship today has been a reminder of the hope that we have because of Christ, that every one of us is forced to confront the reality of death. Every one of us finds ourselves a sinner, rebellious against you, every day tempted to live as if we were God, as if we were in control of the world. 
But God, you and your grace, you have come to us in our suffering. You have come to us in our sin. You have taken on the power of death and defeated that through the resurrection. And so God, we celebrate that. I pray that if there are people here this morning who are struggling with belief, struggling with faith, struggling, do I really believe that this is true? God, that you would use the power of your word, not my words, but you would use these verses on the screen. You have used the the story of scripture being birth and death and marriage, and you would use all of that, God, to draw our hearts to you. I pray this time of worship right now in the Lord's Supper would be meaningful as we gather together as your people. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.